Good morning, everyone. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line, and we're having another um, great program in lockdown, um, which was a bit unexpected. Um, but in the studio, we have myself, Jacob. I'm Ari. Nice to see you again, or whatever. And Chloe. Good morning. Okay. Well, just before I announce, um, have a bit of we have a bit of discussion about some of the kind of latest headline news. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry Land of the Kulin Nation. I like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right. So um, I guess, I mean, the kind of main. I guess the kind of main sort of sort of news to sort of discuss is obviously we're all going to we've all gone into lockdown um, for the next um, six to seven days um, in response to uh, a number of mystery cases that sort of popped up a bit um, out of nowhere. Well, we don't know the source yet, but we might find out later this morning or this afternoon in terms of what it looks like in in Victoria. But so right now you pretty much um, are not allowed to do you're not allowed to go outside unless you have um, unless you are going out for exercise, um, essential shopping, or more importantly, getting vaccinated. So yeah, I think um, one of the kind of <laughs> one of the kind of good things to probably do while you're in lockdown is you can probably might be able to secure a vaccine appointment despite the fact that um, the, um, the government has been so tippid in terms of its kind of vaccine kind of rollout, as we kind of discussed previously in the program. Yeah. Or you could be a radio presenter. That's apparently essential, which I didn't, I didn't know until yeah, yesterday evening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, one of the things is, well, is I, I think it's, in, it's good to have radio on. Uh, otherwise, what would people um, listen to while they're in lockdown? They would listen to my podcast. <laughs> Worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com. Go there and like literally every post. I need validation, please. Mm. Now, I guess going into um, some kind of, I wanted to sort of cover some. Um, we have a, we actually have quite um, a packed program this week. Um, we have a number of kind of different interviews um, coming up for um, our program today. But I guess the first kind of news story I kind of wanted to discuss, and this is just something that appeared in the Age um, yesterday. But basically, um, the summary of it, it was there was a two-year kind of state parliament inquiry um, on legalising cannabis in Victoria. And essentially, this inquiry was, in a, some sense, set to kind of recommend legalising cannabis in Victoria, but it is essentially being watered down um, um, due to the intervention of a number of Labour Party MP, MPs. 
And now the um, the inquiry's report, which is which was released yesterday morning, now suggests that the government investigate the impacts um, um, that in, investigates the impacts of legalising cannabis for adult personal use in Victoria. A marginal step that essentially dents um, or what the demands, um, a lot of the demands around this inquiry, which was the idea of, of this inquiry was that it would essentially lead into a recommendation um, to, the, um, to the state government to essentially legalise cannabis. And, of course, one of, one of the kind of things is that really the majority of evidence from Australian and international health and legal experts in, um, to the inquiry essentially favoured um, decriminalising cannabis for personal use, including making it legal to grow a small number of plants at home. However, what one of the kind of typical kind of reactions was there were a number of experts, along including the Victorian police, mm-hmm. who oppo- who went in um, out of the way, um, who went in to oppose um, decriminalisation, and of course they argued that. Cannabis use can exasperate um, mental health problems, antisocial behaviour, and road trauma, which oddly all sound like very similar things um, that are caused by our other substance that is completely legal in um, in Australia. And so, yeah, there's We're um, about alcohol. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it is very a very kind of disappointing um, direction. And in fact, it's you know it's actually about time that there's no evidence to suggest that. Um, you know, criminalising cannabis um, has any benefit to society. And there's also the fact that, you know, the whole um, criminalisation of illicit drugs has is essentially being tied to, you know, the empowerment of the police state, um, mm-hmm. criminalisation of working class people and so on. For sure. One of the recommendations of the, or the initial recommendations before it was watered down, in terms of decriminalisation was overturning convictions for people who were already arrested or who had cannabis um, crimes or whatever on their records. And it's very, uh, at this point, typical of the Andrews government to oppose something that would, uh, let's say, uh, decriminalize the working class, like you said, people of color, whatever, the sorts of people who tend to get convictions for that sort of thing. <clears throat> yeah, well, yeah, I agree. Um, Ari, we know that cannabis um, prohibition is it's steeped in, in prejudice. The war on drugs is racist. Um, and it really does affect the poor and racial minorities that continue to be disproportionately targeted by these, um, you know, harmful drug laws. Um, but I was, I don't know if, it, um, you know, I was actually trying to figure out why, um, you know, because Victoria legalized the use of medicinal uh, cannabis in 2016 wasn't it but i don't even know why cannabis became illegal like an illegal substance here in the first place it Mm. became illegal here back in 1926 and it's a bit of a mystery it seems like it just they just banned it here in victoria just for no reason at all i'm Mm. happy to be corrected but you know it's really important that we fight these unjust drug laws and that continue to harass working class people, um, Aboriginal people, queer people, you know, um, people of colour. Um, mm. They're just filling up. I mean, police use these laws to just fill the jails up with um, young Aboriginal people. Well, I mean, to give, a ge- I guess, a bit of my assessment, I guess, of the history, I mean... I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that illicit drugs have been made illegal kind of in the past. And, of course, you know, some of that can um, be partially attributed to 
people not um, not necessarily understanding the kind of health effects of these of these illicit drugs, but the actual kind of like in terms of like the history of 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 drug legislation, really the primary reason for um, making cannabis and all sorts of illicit drugs illegal has never really been based on public health. It has always necessarily been based on law enforcement. Um, and essentially one of the kind of things as well, I guess the current kind of context we're kind of living in is there's actually quite a lot of mass support for legalising cannabis um, um, and so on. It's probably one of the, the illicit drugs that is probably like probably one of the more the safer that's safer ones um it's actually probably safer than than alcohol which is yeah. what i kind of mentioned yeah. um is um completely legalized but really i mean one of the kind of things is from the perspective of police forces from around the world they actually like the idea yeah um that they can essentially they essentially have the right by law to criminalise people who possess it, despite the fact that they won't necessarily act on on it because there's such kind of mass support for um, for um, kind of um, cannabis legalisation and and because you know if there was like a case where you know they arrested someone. Um, for possession, you know, there would likely be a lot of kind of media attention. And of course, that would be an opportunity kind of for activists to essentially mobilize and, um, yeah, mobilize and actually argue for, let push the government to legalize it. And one of the kind of issues is that's why it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be a simple kind of straightforward process to um, legalize because otherwise, if legalizing it has the implication of actually taking away a power of enforcement <laughs> from from the, um, the police, and when you look also at the United States, most the majority of the reasons why they criminalized cannabis was because cannabis was highly associated with um, left wing political movements, yeah. uh, especially in the 1960s, which is um, around the period that this um, the war on drugs really kind of started, and yeah, essentially it is it was a way of criminalizing. A particular substance and using it to target and repress um, left-wing activists because there was a particular um, context by which it was associated with it. Yeah, an advisor yeah. to Nixon told um, this journalist um, in 1994, we knew, they admitted that that was the case, um, mm. that w- they said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal um, to be either against the war or b- on black people, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, um, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. So, um, yeah, I mean, police here, they use drug laws, you know, to, to get out their sniffer dogs and assault, basically assault people by strip searching them. So yeah, we need to, we need to get rid of these laws. They're terrible. For sure. Mm. Plus, a fun fact, and I don't know for sure that this is the case in Australia, but a lot of the, uh, criminalization of hemp and cannabis initially came from lobbying from the logging industry. Because you can use cannabis as a renewable source of paper, whereas trees, not so renewable. Oh, that's a good fact. And also, I didn't know that marijuana can actually be in your system for up to 30 days. <laughs> Did you know that? So if you're driving and they drug test you, yeah, um, yeah just be careful if you've taken any. It could be like a mm. whole month. Yeah, and you can get 
You can lose your license. That's definitely maybe. why I still don't have my license. That's definitely why. Not any other reasons. Don't worry about it. Well, I thought, I thought you didn't have a license because um, you just don't want to drive. Because who who wants to drive in this um, in Melbourne? I said, don't worry about it, Jacob. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess I mean the other kind of thing is um is I is one of the other kind of forces of kind of opposition to to legalizing was also the Liberal Party. Um but of course I think you know I think it's pretty you know just um pretty disgraceful that you know the Andrews government kind of likes to paint itself as kind of progressive and you know it can't even implement a very modest kind of reform um that would actually make people um, would actually do a lot um, to make people, you know, to improve the lives of kind of working class people, um, especially reducing the um, reducing the criminalisation of, of working class people. The fact that, you know, the Andrews government's not even willing. Um, and, you know, it was sort of interesting, as I sort of noted, you know, the Victorian kind of police's sort of justification, um, you know, essentially they, they could, you can make those same arguments against alcohol, um, yeah. and, yeah. You, and no, there's been, there's no cause to make it illegal. <laughs> um, yeah. but of course, one of the kind of interesting kind of things is when, when it comes to the whole kind of discourse on the war on kind of drugs, the, the capitalist class will always go on about the kind of criminal kind of elements that are kind of involved in the kind of heart of it. Yeah. And of course, going back into kind of history, when, Alcohol was illegal and prohibited. That was essentially what happened. Alcohol yeah. then became a kind of business or for organised crime, etc. Mm. And really, you know, if if these capitalist governments were really that concerned about the criminal usage of cannabis and all these kind of particular drugs, then actually the solution is not to criminalise it further and just give more money to police to um, it, yeah. it actually would be more uh, more meaningful to actually legalise a lot of these illicit drugs and then take them out of that criminal market Yeah, I mean the Age uh, article that we're talking about even quotes, um, I think it was the Australian Lawyers Alliance that made the who made the point about this legislation that it would in fact be a way of combating like the actual quote-unquote crime around drugs and like cannabis trafficking or you know drug trafficking all that sort of the stuff that like you would actually want to stop would be stopped by decriminalization or legalization letting people have weed legally means that the the kind of criminal enterprise of producing weed of uh, producing cannabis is much less profitable and much less able to sustain itself like you said, it's very comparable to prohibition. But, you know, all these parties who say, oh, yeah, we're tough on crime, we don't want crime, whatever. What they mean, of course, is we're tough on criminals. And uh, you can identify criminals by sight. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're getting about time for our first kind of interview. So maybe we'll conclude, I guess, um, this discussion. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 855 AM. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. 
So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, we have our first guest on the program, but I was going to allow the opportunity for our other presenter, Chloe, to introduce her. Thanks, Jacob. So uh, we've got an interview with Zoe Davison. Um, Zoe is a casual pool worker, and at the start of Sydney's lockdown, Zoe was stood down at the Annette Kellerman Aquatic Centre, and she is now part of a campaign to reinstate those workers, um, including her own job, and She's fighting for pandemic pay for casual workers um, and those um, on Centrelink. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Zoe. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting uh, working on this campaign and getting to see and hear so many people's stories. Yeah, I bet. Um, well, first of all, uh, Zoe, we're really sorry to hear that you lost your job, um, but, you know, you are currently uh, fighting to get your job back at the Annette uh, Kellerman Aquatic Center in um, Marrickville in Sydney, and um, you know we know you've been empowering your your co-workers to join that that campaign and uh, fight to get their jobs back, and uh, calling for more income support. So, I guess just um, would you be able to just tell us a bit more about this campaign? Yeah, definitely, um, and thank you. Although unfortunately, I'm I'm really not in a very unique uh, situation at all. Uh, you know, a lot of people are in my situation at the moment, and that's why. You know, when this campaign first started, that was a little bit of the, the fallback we got, uh, the pushback we got was that, you know, uh, this was industry standard and that was what management said to us a lot was industry standard, um, it's across the board standard and unfortunately it has been, um, but we, we think that's not good enough. Um, mm-hmm. And from the start of this lockdown, we started the campaign with a small in-person protest uh, outside of the aquatic centre before restrictions were tightened. And then obviously since then it's been a lot harder, um, more really impossible to do anything in person. Um, so we've since moved to have numerous online events, including a really successful day of community action where we actually received over 100 pictures of people holding messages of support, which really does show kind of how important uh, these centres are to the community and how many people really do care um, about the people and the staff there. Um, at the start of our campaign, our demands were, were pretty narrow. They were, they were exactly that we, we should all just be paid pandemic leave, uh, everyone that had been stood down. And then obviously since things have changed, um, our demands have changed a little bit to become a little bit more specific, um, including, you know, really trying to get the people that were falling through the cracks of the disaster payment paid by management and also uh, trying to instate, test and isolate payments and things like that for the future when we're back at work. Thanks. um, Sorry for that. Um, Sounds like a really inspiring campaign. Um, Yeah, I guess we should all be, you know, really worried that, Um, you know, workers like you were just discarded by a company that clearly has funds to to pay and um, keep their workers during this pandemic. And I'm referring to Belgravia Leisure. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, So they're the ones that are responsible for standing down an entire workforce. And, you know, they're worth billions of dollars, and yet they're claiming they can't afford to pay their workers. Um, 
you know, their mm. CEO is one of the richest 200 people in Australia. Um, I just, I guess I, you did sort of, uh, you know, answer it a bit, but, you know, how have management responded to this ongoing campaign? I know you had a car cavalcade um, that was um, reported in Green Left, and, you know, I, I know that one of the the um, protesters got fined a substantial amount. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, you know, yeah. what do man- management have to say about um, what what's going on with the campaign? Yeah, so management have been quite resistant from the start. Mm. Um, from the start of our campaign, we've received emails from management uh, basically saying that, it's not their problem and that, uh, like, like I said earlier, that um, they basically pointed to the fact that, you know, other industries are having to go through it. Um, they also pointed to 2020. They said that it was proof that the burden of supporting employees has to be on the government and not on individual employers. Um, but what we said to that was proof of 2020 was really that, you know, it was people like us that were missing out. It was employees. It's not these big companies who benefited from JobKeeper and then got to keep all the profit from it. It's actually people, um, the workers that had to pay the the brunt of it while billionaires got richer. So, you know, we we definitely didn't agree with that. Um, They also said they couldn't afford it. And like you said, you know, we also really thought that that was was not (laughs) the most true considering that they're... Like you said, their their CEO is a multimillionaire and one of the richest people in Australia. Um, So that's, you know... And even, actually, our our centre uh, particularly was quite bad because um, other centres were were offering a little bit of support for workers and that they were opening up for admin sort of jobs um, during the lockdown. But our our work wouldn't even do that, unfortunately. Um, So that was something else that we were kind of arguing for. Um, The other time that uh, managed police were involved in the campaign was in that first protest, uh, which was completely COVID safe, less than 10 people, uh, spaced out. uh, And this was when you were allowed to have 10 people outside. And management were... Um, although we can't be sure, we're pretty certain that management called police on that to break that up. Um, and then the next day we received an email stating that, you know, while they uh, agreed with our right to have a voice, they didn't agree that we were sending the right message, which was interesting. Oh, that's just, yeah, the police using the, mm. um, you know, the health orders to, to, to punish protesters. And, um, yeah, I, I, I was also reading that, uh, management actually thought it was appropriate to offer sacked workers, um, you know, boot camps as a form of restitution. Um, yes. It's, I think, I mean, it's really insulting, you know. I mean, what makes them think that you'd be motivated to go to boot camp when, you you know, people can't afford food? I'm glad you yeah, didn't accept definitely. that offer. <laughs> the other thing that they offered to us at that same time was a, a corporate um, solutions-based counselling service. Um, which was which was very uh, non-clinical looking, very corporate looking. Um, they also met with staff early on, kind of very early on in the campaign, uh, but were unwilling to really negotiate at all. And since then, haven't really even been willing to meet with us. So it has been pretty pretty staunch and radio silence on their end for most of their campaign, besides from some pretty you know insulting emails. Oh yeah, I mean it's pretty awful. I mean companies like um, Belgravia um, Leisure—they're profiting from something that is, you know, has been built by the community without giving exactly. anything back. Yeah, and it's just—I mean it's just creating misery. Um, yeah, and it is terrible that under COVID-19, casual workers are just considered expendable. 
Um, but like you said, you're, you know, they're saying it's an industry st- standard. Um, and, you know, millions of people have been stood down during this Delta variant of COVID and, you know, the eventual lockdowns affecting essential workplaces. Um, you know, and, you know, people aren't eligible for government support. Um, you know, yeah. they're entitled to or entitled to annual leave. And it just, just leaves so many people, um, you know, without income for the duration of a lockdown. So, you know, if you're locked down for two weeks, that's two weeks of lost wages uh, for someone yeah, who definitely. lives paycheck to paycheck. That can be really devastating. Um, it can drive people into serious um, financial hardship and poverty. Um, but I guess um, I was wanting to know what, I mean, you did touch on it before, but, you know, what do you think of the, the federal government's support of workers who have been stood down as a result of COVID-19 yeah, so uh, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of people have been living paycheck to paycheck and then automatically, like, all of a sudden have to last a month without any extra support from the government. And, you know, I was one of those people. Um, I I am on youth allowance, so I wasn't eligible for any of the disaster payments, yeah. which meaning after rent I was on $10 a day. Um, and without the support of, you know, a partner and family, I wouldn't have been able to pay rent. I wouldn't have been able to afford food. Um, and, you know, not everyone is lucky enough to have a support network. And even the ones that are, it shouldn't be on the burden of our of our family and friends on their generosity to, to support us. You know, my family aren't well off. They're just very generous. Um, and they're in a lot of the same situation that I am. They've been stood down as well. They have to support kids and pay a mortgage on as little as $600 a week. That's, that's oh, ridiculous. You can't ridiculous. expect anyone to do that. Yeah, and it's... You know, not only that, um, you know, the financial stuff, it's, I've spoken to a lot of people in my situation um, that haven't been able to receive the disaster payments um, because they were on income support. That's been really the issue I've been really involved with because it's so, so personal to me. Um, and, you know, I have, I have friends that uh, have gone into over $1,000 of debt in this last oh. month, might not be able to get the disaster payment because they can't prove that they've lost eight hours of work. Because, you know, yeah, because a lot of the thing is as well with the the government is that they've they've purposefully targeted the most vulnerable in the community. Mm. Um, You know, it's not that we've fallen through the cracks like a lot of the media has kind of been playing it as. It's that we were purposefully written into the legislation as ineligible, you know, as part of the eligibility requirements. No one on income support can receive it, which left people, um, you know, it just doesn't even make any logical sense, like, Youth allowance is less than job seeker. I have to supplement it with casual work since I've lost that, you know. Um, and then as well to then bring in the disaster payment for top up for uh, people on income support while a small win and, you know, while it's better than nothing is just a bit of a slap in the face and a bit ridiculous because um, it's still less than overall what you would get on the other disaster payment. And I just That's think right. it, it's really quite horrible to split people um, in tiers of worthiness. Um, and the other thing is that, like I mentioned before, you have to be able to prove you've lost eight hours of work. And a lot of people that are on job seeker and underemployed or youth allowance, um, you know, are having cash in hand jobs or have jobs that are really, you know, maybe not the most mm. um, official. And That's they right. have to to be able to get by and they still deserve support, you know. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's been absolutely ridiculous. The other thing that I think is really, really horrible with this disaster support top up with the income for the income uh, people, people on income support 
is that, mm-hmm. you know, we've been left for a month without any extra support. I, I Like I said, I know people who've gone into debt. So then to bring in this payment and not talk about any compensation for the last month is, is you know, not very fair. I had to do the... I applied for it and you even have to put into the application... Um, you know, how it's affected you, for example, you're in a COVID hotspot and then they ask you for how long it's been affecting you and the only option you're allowed to give is from the start of this week. But, you know, it's been affecting everyone for a lot longer than that. Uh, So I just think it is the government have been horrendous um, with their support. They've been uh, really obvious with their over-policing of poorer communities. But this is an attack on, like, the working class. It definitely is. I mean, disaster payments are not actually reaching people who are actually facing a disaster. And and I, yeah. I think it, it did increase that payment to 750 or something, or maybe it's ended, but it certainly doesn't make up for, you know, 1.2 million students, pensioners, um, people with disability and their carers, um, and also the unemployed, like you said, um, people who are already on, um, you know, youth allowance or, you know, Centrelink. They all went without that support for four weeks, um, and you were one of those people, um, you know, who went without that for for four weeks. It's just uh, impossible to make it up. Um, uh, actually, I have just maybe a couple of questions. How are you doing for time? Oh, all good. Yep. Um, I guess I wanted to ask about the community. You did mention that there is, um, mm. you know, quite a bit of community support. Um, and the the Annette Kellerman Aquatic Centre is partially owned or funded by the Inner West City Council. Um, I guess maybe just um, give us a bit of a brief um, just idea of how the broader community has been supportive to you and the other workers during this campaign. Yeah, of course. So I'm just explaining at Kellerman um, Aquatic Centre a little bit is that, yeah, it's it's owned by the council and was built by the council, um, but they've outsourced the management, which is actually really common uh, for aquatic centres and, and gyms and, and the like. Um, in fact, a lot of Sydney's pools are owned by Belgravia Leisure, which is why they're such a, well, not owned, uh, run by Belgravia Leisure because that's why they're such a, a wealthy com- company. Um, we are lucky enough that at our centre, we are going back to being run by the Inner West in next in 2022, so next year, um, which I think is why we've received kind of a little bit of a, a disinterest from management because they're just mm. not engaged in doing anything since they're, they're kind of out of there next year anyway. But that's not the case in all of Belgravia centres. Um, unfortunately, they're still running a lot of uh, community-owned pools. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the centre is a community hub, you know, working there um, and then walking around the streets of Marrickville, I see so many people, um, you know, I'm recognised everywhere I go because it really is one of the hearts of um, the, the suburb and people have really shown that they, they care about um, who works there and, you know, how they're being treated. Like I said, we received over 100 photos of community support um, at the start of lockdown. Um, that was really, really helpful. I, I know that management have received a few emails um, on our behalf of, of members that have been aware of their campaign. We've had uh, teachers, uh, we've had parents pull their their students out of swim school classes um, mm. in support of, of the swim school teachers. Um, so, you know, we have really seen a big rally around um, and it is unfortunate that these other other pools aren't going back to the community. So I think that is something that we should focus on and really push um, community spaces to become going back to the, the local council. 
thanks, thanks, Zoe. Um, I guess we'll we'll start to wrap up um, mm-hmm. soon. Um, yeah, thanks. I mean, you've been such an excellent leader um, in the fight for for workers' rights, and you know, we really hope you win. Um, you know, maybe for anyone listening out there, you know, people have lost their jobs, or you know, maybe have, people can help out with this campaign. Did you have any? Um, you know, any other comments that you'd like to say or if any other, other presenters wanted to ask a question, now's, now's a chance. Or, um, Zoe, really if you just, had any, like, last comments, maybe. Yeah, um, really just as well that, you know, it really is unfair that the individuals have been made to feel so guilty about it. And I think, especially in a time where, where lockdown, you know, really does affect people's mental health and financial stress is a huge, huge burden on mental health. Um and especially when we've got, you know, people in the government like Gladys, um, you know, saying, putting blame on individuals for not following restrictions, when really it, it's the government's fault for not rolling out the vaccine mm. um, correctly and not providing test and isolate payments and significant support for people to not go to work and spread the COVID further. So, you know, I would just say to people that, uh, you know, losing work, that it's not your fault <laughs> and yeah. that... Um, you know, it, it is the government that that really bear this responsibility. Yeah, well said. It, it seems like um, the only way that ordinary workers are going to survive this pandemic, by the way, governments are treating people around the world, is just their solution is just be rich. You should be rich exactly. um, to get through. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Unfortunately, not everyone has that opportunity. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much um, for joining us on the show this morning. Zoe, uh, solidarity to you and all the pool workers at Annette uh, Kellerman Aquatic Centre. We'll be keeping an eye on the campaign. And listeners, um, you can check out Green Left for coverage of this uh, ongoing campaign. Okay, thanks, comrade. Have a lovely day. Have a lovely day. Have a good week. Weekend. All right. Um, so we're just um, speaking to Zoe um, Davison, um, who is a who is a stood de- um, who has been part of a campaign, um, part of an ongoing campaign to reinstate um, pool workers. Her being someone who was a, a, a worker at this um, at this aquatic centre, and also talking more generally about the impacts of the the pandemic and the lockdowns on um, on young people and how the government's support has been completely inadequate. Now I'll just go play. I think I'll play a quick um, few. I'll, qu- I'll play a quick um, announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What you name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Free CR, always bringing you the latest union news.
They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, sort of would be a good opportunity to play a bit of a song. Um, one um, one thing that we've been one thing that we regularly print in Green Left is we print um, we print regular articles on the different on our alternative kind of left wing kind of music that comes out um, every year. So here's um, this is going to be I'm going to play um, Jack uh, an album by Jackson Brown um, a song by Jackson Brown until justice is real. Um, which is basically one um, part of the 10 new albums that protest against climate action, which um, is an article on Green Left that you can read in as part of Cultural Descent. Um, so, yeah, hope you um, enjoy. Not that much distance between you and the sun 
You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and you're just listening to Until Justice is Real by Jackson Brown. Now, we just have a few minutes before our next interview for the program. Um, I just wanted to kind of bring up just a few, um, one kind of quick kind of news story from um, the pages of Green Left. And that is, um, this is an article, um, this is just a bit of a quick kind of news article um, by Jim McElroy. Um, and basically, it's kind of reporting um, on a recent kind of federal court ruling, which has basically the, um, ruled that Qantas has unfairly sacked and outsourced um, 2,500 baggage handlers, ramp workers and cabin cleaners last year, um, you, um, late last year, using the pandemic as excuse. And I think... This, I think this is a particular kind of important kind of, um, um, important sort of court decision in a sense that 
basically in the kind of context of last year, you know, um, companies like um, Qantas and all these kind of airline companies got massive kind of handouts from um, from the government. And, of course, the, the handouts was based on essentially propping up the industry because, obviously, one of the kind of things, the impacts of this COVID-19 pandemic has been its um the consequences for the kind of airline industry and and the response of the government has been essentially to prop up these companies at any costs and but the 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 hypocrisy is despite the fact that the likes of Qantas um and have received like millions of dollars in um subsidies um from the government they still and um um Ended up sacking a whole sections of their workforce. Um, workforce. Um, so I think, yeah, this is. Um, you can read more um, about this um, on in greenleft.org.au, um, with the uh, with the article being titled "Federal Court Qantas Wrong to Outsource Ground Staff During Pandemic." All right, um, I'll just go play um, a quick. I'll just play a quick few um, announcements, um, and then we'll go on to our next interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left um, Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope, seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 All right, um, you are listening to um, Green Left um, Radio on FreeCR. And for our second guest on the program, um, we're very happy to have Tom Tanuki, um, who we've actually previously had on our program before. Um, but Tom um, Tanuki is um, a pretty prominent um, anti-fascist activist. Um, he runs the, um, he's part of um, this sort of group called Yelling at Racist Dogs, and he's also a comedian and also regular kind of commentator. And in fact, one of the reasons um, we have him, um, we're having him on the program today is to kind of have a bit of a kind of discussion about the kind of appearance of these sort of large, well, not necessarily large, I don't want to sort of overstate how big they are, but there is these, there's an, there is this kind of appearance of this anti-kind of lockdown kind of movement, which is kind of linked um, to um, the, the far right. So we're having, um, we're having Tom on the line to have a bit of a discussion about it. So, yeah, good morning, Tim. I'm Tom. <laughs> good morning. Thanks for having me along. Yeah, so, um, Tom, I guess to kind of start off, um, yeah, you've re- we recently wrote an article for the Independent um, Australia for this, and of course, you probably also noticed that um, last um, night there was actually um, quite a significant anti-lockdown protest in response to the snap lockdown um, by the Victorian government, which kind of attracted over a thousand people. And I guess I want to kind of hear your kind of assessment and guess an analysis on 
where this kind of anti-lockdown movement has come from and it's like and the kind of politics it's kind of putting forward yeah sure um like, i mean last night had anywhere from yeah as, as low as a thousand people to possibly three four thousand and that's not me trying to overstate numbers in fact i i found a uh a, a couple of weekends ago with those enormous protests all along the eastern seaboard that people were by and large you know really underestimating the numbers as well so so we can't you know underestimate how big they tend to grow although it tends to be a very flash growth you know it's a situation thing and to answer your question about the anti-lockdown movement well i would say it's just i would characterize it as being a, a loose conglomerate of a series of, of factions or as q anon anonymous podcast podcaster and researcher travis you says he calls movements like q anon big tent uh, uh, groups, and that means that there's very different factions, I suppose, vying for for information control. And um, within that movement, I suppose the factions that you have uh, are the anti-vax faction, who seem to have won out. I mean, you know, with the fairly obviously in hindsight, because what does a pandemic do in its latest stages? It ends up with everyone having to talk about getting vaccinated. Um, but you've also had sovereign citizen elements. Um, there was an early stage anti-5G element. Um, yes, it's been some of the QAnon stuff and, yeah, various other elements like that. And as you sort of identified, there has been a, a, a meddling far-right element in there. Not controlling, but there have been far-right people trying to, to indoctrinate people along to anti-Semitic ideas from day dot. Uh, you know, they've been doing that daily. So within there, I suppose, you have melting pot conspiracy groups on Facebook or increasingly Telegram, because a lot of these places have been banned off of big tech, you know, mainstream platforms. And within those spaces, people share conspiracies. Um, it, it would it would almost be a leaderless movement if it weren't for this presence of, of, of figureheads. You know, and people who create these constant spectacles, whether it be stunts or GoFundMes or constant videos, and, and some of them have different motivations. I mean, some of them, and this is pretty typical of everyone, I suppose, in the modern social media age, people either want the attention that comes with having a, view, a video that has 100,000 views, or they want the money. Um, you know, they're seasoned grifters like Arvi Yemeni who've used every single spectacle that they create could create throughout the lockdown to do GoFundMes, you know, and they've ensured that their dinners for the next few years are sorted. And then there's the, I suppose, there's the political career. So there's a lot of people who want to turn this anti-lockdown movement into a, a you know, a, a voter block for their upcoming fringe or independent party. So they, they, those people sort of shape the movement and give it a bit of direction, you know. Uh, however, you notice things like last night, once you've brought all these people in, you know, if, if situations occur that make them all anxious and angry, like the snap lockdown, then you can suddenly get thousands of people out um, on the streets with little to no organising, um, which is, uh, you know, call uh, it what you like, but it's pretty incredible. Hmm. And, Chief, going into kind of, kind of the next um, question, um, you kind of brought up this whole um, thing about political kind of careerists, and one interesting kind of thing I kind of... Um, I stumbled upon kind of last night um, was that um, 
One Nation, um, the One Nation kind of senator, um, Malcolm Roberts, um, had actually, they've actually produced a bit, this is a bit of a, a kind of camp, it's a bit of kind of a video advertising what I assume to be, um, rallies that are anti-lockdown in nature and, um, basically against mandatory kind of vaccination. But what sort of struck me about this kind of video was it had this element of, you on one hand you saw the it was basically a group of pe- different types of it was a montage of different people speaking out in support of this upcoming sort of anti-lockdown um anti-mandatory vaccination sort of protest and yeah. what sort of in- what was sort of interesting was it had people who would be typically associated with the far right um or the very far right of politics i.e. one nation um rise up etc and but on the other hand you also had people that looked like they sort of came from a sort of hippie sort of um you know alternative sort of lifestyle sort of background typically something you know people within that reign would actually be more associated with the kind of left um than the right and i guess yeah. i want to sort of hear your kind of assessment on what what why why do you think that this sort of strange sort of alliance um appears to be sort of um, happening within the anti-lockdown movement? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting question and one that, that, you know, would probably take an extremely long time uh, to, to, to break down in full. But, you know, some of my best guesses are that um, if you look at the history of anti-vax and, uh, say, medical libertarian movements, particularly in places like... America with horrendous social welfare nets, you know, example, the, the, the ability to access medical care is extremely hampered for most people. You, you, you understandably see this wellness circuit rise up where people can offer you with natural alternative solutions um, to the um, extortionately expensive hospital care in America. And, 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 and that's not American alone, you know, that sort of network of wellness, uh, uh, I suppose, you know, drifting, um, extended throughout the world. And that is very much coded as, I wouldn't necessarily say left-wing, but left-wing adjacent because we have a history of associating neo-spiritual hippie types, for better or for worse, with um, with, with the left-wing. And I, and I think, you know, the groups like that become really susceptible to the um, manipulations of well-funded, uh, you know, fringe or lobby type groups, and they became susceptible, of course, to the anti-vax, um, you know, organisation. And we know that anti-vax is a billion-dollar industry. We know for a fact that it makes billions of dollars for big tech social media. So, you know, and that's them paying for their own advertising and such. So you can only imagine the amount of money in there. Um, and, you know, anti-vax, of course, you know, always talks about how um, big pharma is is evil because of its profit-driven motive. And I am not going to disagree with that. But, however, one of the saving graces, one of the few saving graces, is that at least big, big pharma has... Um, has legislation and regulations and the like keeping it in check. But, you know, some uh, grifter associated with the anti-vax movement who creates videos and creates spectacles, they have no such checks and balances. And I think the same could be said a lot of a lot of that sort of wellness circuit. And I noticed from the start of the anti-lockdown movement, they were feeding people in from the very outset. You know, you've also got associated with the wellness circuit is the MLM 
tennis circuit, the multi-level marketing people, and, you know, this extremely hampered people's capacity with lockdowns and the like to do their direct networking sort of angle. And so MLMs, you know, and the people around them. There's a virulent medical libertarian sort of messaging that, that fed a lot of people that you would have once thought were kind of left people into there. And, you know, things I'm hearing from people are that that um, that towns like Mullumbimby have just become, you know, completely, you know, struck down the middle. You know, there's an enormous divide there. And, and, and the day-to-day of these anti-vax or, or anti-lockdown groups where they're organising, are extremely catastrophic in their messaging. You know, I, I, am never, I am never more anxious than when I'm looking into those spaces myself because you're, you're hearing the, about these control plans by the population to take everyone over and to force them into the subservience. It's an extremely fear-based movement, and that will bring anyone together if you successfully do it, whether that be left, right or whatever. Hmm. And... Um one of the kind of in, one of the sort of interesting um, the next you kind of went for um, gave a kind of a good sort of analysis of the all the kind of different sort of eccentricities um, within the kind of movement, um, and I guess this sort of growing sort of anti sort of lockdown kind of movement. But I guess one of the other sort of things um, that we can't kind of forget is how you know how this kind of movement has actually kind of grown in response to the failures of the government. Um, because you know, on the one, on the other hand, though, I also would like to also mention that in terms of this kind of anti-lockdown protest, even though this anti-lockdown protest is clearly being cracked down by the state, um, for better or worse, um, the police sent massive kind of um, um, had a massive sort of um, enforcement um, to basically get, um, to stop a pro- uh, lockdown protest from hap- anti-lockdown protest from happening last weekend in Sydney. But yeah. one of the kind of other interesting those things though to note is. When these anti-lockdown protests were happening kind of last year, the kind of mainstream news outlet, because the mainstream Murdoch news outlets were um, anti-lockdown at the time, they're apparently now pro-lockdown because New South Wales is doing it, but there was actually this encouragement from the Murdoch kind of press of of this kind of far-right anti-lockdown movement. And we even had comments from Scott Morrison um, last year, when asked about the big size of this anti-lockdown protest, he, he sort of tried to explain it away as people expressing their anger. On the other hand, that's not what he said about the Black Lives Matter protests that were in solidarity with um, George Floyd. So I kind of want to kind of hear your kind of assessment on, you know, this the growth of this movement in the context of the government's failures and also the complicity of, you know, the Murdoch media and so on in actually propping up this movement. Yeah, well, uh, you know, one thing that I think hampered the growth of it was the um, incredible emergency welfare net that was extended to not everyone. There were notable gaps with people who were here on, you know, like uh, visas or what have you, uh, you know, refugees, uh, various other groups of people, casuals who'd worked for less than 12 months with JobKeeper. Um, There were gaps, but there was nevertheless a pretty broad social welfare net that I think saved us and made it, possible for people to stay at home. After all, how can you, you, you... You know, the truth is you cannot do lockdowns effectively over the long term unless you're giving people something that they can eat meals with whilst they adhere to your instruction to lock down. And the difference between this year and last year is that our that social welfare net is all but gone. 
they reduced the job seeker back down to almost pre-pandemic levels. Um, and there's no more job keeper. They make offers about certain uh, temporary welfare measures that you can access, but only if you can demonstrate that your income has dropped by a certain amount, which of course isn't possible for a lot of people because of their, you know, nature of their work or what have you. So, you know, so situationally, because of this woeful government response, not to mention the completely screwed up vaccine rollout, um, you see that when people get angry and anxious, um, there's no net for them. There's nothing for them to be protected by. So they hit the streets, you know, and they did that um, with pretty little notice last um, a couple of weekends ago in Sydney, and they had tens of thousands of people out there. And we cannot sit back and say that all of those people were, you know, oh, red-pilled, far-right, anti-vax, this and that and the other. They certainly weren't. A lot of them were just pissed-off people, pardon the French, who came out with barely any notice at all um, because they weren't being supported. They were being told in Western Sydney that they couldn't go to their work, um, you know, because they'd shut down construction and that's cash in hand for a lot of people so they couldn't access any other benefits. The rental moratoriums weren't available to them. And so, you know, thanks to this government mess-up, people are joining the anti-lockdown movement. And so, you know, I... I'm constantly wrestling with the question of what, what should we, as the left, be saying about this? And what we should be saying, in my belief, is that, you know, we should be talking about how we don't believe in state restraint. We believe in self or communal restraint. Now, some of the best things I saw coming out of the entire pandemic were the amazing mutual aid efforts of last year. Now, they're very difficult to do, you know, during... During lockdowns, uh, I, I admit, you know, and particularly as time goes by, but we do not, you know, I, I do not support this excess of state restraint. When I see there, and I, when I watch and I see police being absolutely brutal with people who I don't necessarily agree with, I don't cheer it on. You know, I will never do that because I've been around in activism long enough to know that the next up will be my comrades. And we should know about that. And what we should be demanding is material gains for people. Because without those things, people can't and they won't stay at home. And the only direction that they'll get, because they're not getting any from our government, is from these ludicrous telegram groups where they're being told that there's a New World Order plan just put them under control, you know. They'll get their direction from there and they'll keep hitting the streets, whether they're in a hot spot or not. Hmm. Well, I think you kind of um, gave a kind of good, um, um, really kind of good kind of um, note. We're kind of running a bit out of time now, but I guess, do you have any guess, any sort of um, concluding kind of comments you like to make? I mean, that was almost like a very good conclusion, but I'm sure you might have sort of some other comments um, you might want to add, because I guess one sort of interesting point I just want to add um, as well is I've actually heard um, on that regards to the question of kind of the police, um, I've actually heard of there has been some reports, um, although this hasn't necessarily made the mainstream sort of media and, of course, not a completely 100% sure on whether all these kind of reports would be true. But, of course, it's not. It wouldn't be unsurprising if this was the case. But one of the kind of interesting sort of dynamics with this 
anti-lockdown protests is that there is this sort of um there is this sort of talk that there's individual kind of police officers who are actually in support of these kind of anti-lockdown protests but which wouldn't un- be unsurprising because there is a lot of links between the police and the far right um especially in countries like Germany but i guess another sort of interesting sort of dynamic from some of the rhetoric i've actually seen from some of these anti-lockdown protests is they've been very keen to sort of um, give a message that the police are actually supporting the protests, which is sort of very different from how the left would like to conceptualise our protests. We tend to like we tend to define our protests as good if the police don't support it, and so yeah, that's yeah. A, sort of an interesting dynamic there. Um, if you had any yeah. comments on that, yeah, well, it's such a mixed bag. I, I have to say, I have seen extremes of both ends. I've seen some of the most aggressive. Uh, approaches to police I've ever seen at rallies, just looking at live streams at the line. Combined with that sort of Pepsi ad style, oh, if only the police would join us kind of hand-wringing approach. And I'm sure that there are, you know, which is, that's a little bit of a far-right thing in my experience, you know. Um, that sort of, that, um, uh, you know, those two poles of very different attitudes and just flitting between them as, as it suits the the movement. Um, so that's quite far right. But, you know, I, and I'm sure that there are people, police who are on board, but I think there's also probably a lot of police officers who, uh, you know, uh, are tired of having to risk themselves during outbreak points going out to deal with movements that aren't essentially even calling for anything. And I think we should forget that, that essentially they're calling for the end of all lockdowns based on the presupposition that coronavirus or is an exaggeration or an outright lie. And unfortunately, that's not terms that we're going to have to come to agree with. So we end up as a, at a bit of a, a stalemate here. But I would make one more statement just to muddle things a bit further, which is that, you know, there's another thing that's a mixed bag about this movement is that, yes, they have very staunch uh, far-right elements trying to manipulate them, but I have also seen that they've taken quite a principled approach. Some elements of the movement have taken a principled approach to trying to oust far-right elements. I've seen uh, one neo-Nazi, a guy called Jared Seavey, kicked out of a group of his beliefs, and I think there was a bit of coordinated organisation behind that. And I have seen some elements trying to do their best to get rid of those elements. Now, does that mean that we suddenly agree with their response to coronavirus? No. But it doesn't, but it just means it's worth noting that this is an extremely mixed bag. And it, it at least offers me some hope that maybe there might be a point at which we could come into a kind of a dialogue. Because my dream is that we could at least tell these people that, you know, when it comes to some of their freedom based messaging, you know, I don't think it's a call for anything too substantial. I would be happy for them to do their corny freedom protests. I just want them to do it when there's not an outbreak happening. You know, so that's my very minimum demand. My much stronger demand, and this is what I think everyone should join me, is of our government. People need people need reforms. I'm not saying that the people hitting the streets of the anti-lockdown movement are asking for more material support. They're not necessarily. They're asking for the end of the NWO. <laughs> but, but if we could give them that support, then perhaps they wouldn't hit the streets so much because they would be able to eat. So that, that's what I think we should all be getting behind.
Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we've probably run out of time. I think, um, thank you very much, um, Tom, for, um, being on our program. I think you've given a lot of, um, great food for thought and, um, given a sort of great kind of analysis on, on this kind of, um, recent chronora. And of course, it will be definitely be the subject, I guess, of future discussions on our program and within the, and within left kind of media as well, because this movement right now is not necessarily going to be going away. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Tom. Thanks so much for that, Jake. And if, if anyone wants to hit up my YouTube channel, Tom Tanneke, I'm doing constant analysis on the, the latest goings on the anti-lockdown movement. So hit that up if you want to see what my take is on the, the latest goings on. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. All right, so we're just interviewing Tom Tanuki, comedian and anti-fascist kind of activist. Now, we ended up um, going a bit over long with that interview, um, so we might not necessarily have time for the Green Left Activist calendar. Now, probably the reason why I kind of did that is because because of the kind of lockdown we're kind of in, we probably will skip the activist calendar for this week. We actually just don't even know what is actually going to be happening, and so... By next Friday, we should hopefully, the lockdown will probably be lifted and we'll probably have at least a clear idea on what um, political events are coming. Because as far as I know, a lot of the events that were going to be happening within this week um, were all apparent, were, meant, were mostly meant to be in person with some online events. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, um, give as much information, um, about any kind of upcoming events, um, following, um, uh, coming up next week, um, at next week's program. So yeah, um, you're listening to Green Left Radio and I'll just go play, um, a quick announcement. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What you name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. 
So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. All right. Okay. Hello and welcome back to Green Life Radio on 3CR. Um, we were trying to get a hold of uh, Ruby Pandolfi from the University of New South Wales SRC Education Collective, who's uh, involved in organising a thing. I'll get back to it in a sec, sorry. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, these things happen, but we haven't been able to get a hold of her, so um, we won't be able to do that interview. But uh, Ruby and the, you know... UNSW SRC Education Collective and a bunch of other Sydney-based student activist organizations and the like are involved in organizing an online counter-summit to the Australian Financial Review Higher Education Summit, which is um, organized to, you know, host liberal MPs and university vice-chancellors and the sort of people who are doing their best to kill off education, especially arts education, but any education, really. And so the counter-protest, the counter-summit, sorry, has been organized to protest ongoing cuts to education, and particularly during the pandemic, and to um, <clears throat> to express frustration and to talk about, like, universities aren't losing money, really. They have, most big universities, most universities have the bottom line to not cut staff, to not increase class sizes, all of that sort of stuff. And so... The counter, um, the sorry, the the counter summit was being organised to explain those sorts is being organised to you know explain those sorts of things to talk about what the actual motivations for this sort of thing are because it's just profit seeking. It's not actually there's no dire need to make these cuts that sort of thing. But as I said, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get hold of, Ru- of Ruby, so we won't be able to do the interview. So yep. um, just giving a summary and stuff. Well, I think um, but yeah, I think um. The, this um, counter summit, I think, will be very important for any kind of um, uni student to kind of support, 
um, especially since um, one kind of context that's quite important to kind of bring up is that the university, um, the, the federal government has literally gutted um, the, um, the higher education sector. And, um, and in fact, really, it's part of their kind of long-term agenda to corporatize universities. Um, they're saying, and in fact, that's reflected in the trends to cut, um, what they consider to be non-useful kind of art courses. Um, like, for example, the attacks on Aboriginal studies. There's even been, there's even been in universities at the university in, in Western Australia, there's even been attacks where the entire anthropological department has been cut. So I think, you know, and the other kind of thing is, um, during the kind of COVID-19 pandemic, um, I mean, we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic, but when I, when I refer to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm talking about sort of last year when the pandemic started and when the government introduced um, um, the likes of kind of JobKeeper, it deliberately excluded um, universities from receiving the payment, which put the universities in a position, although I don't necessarily want to justify this because I think um, the universities were wrong to do this. But of course, a lot of university managements um, essentially felt the pre- um, essentially cut and made a lot of workers redundant um, because of um, because of the shortfall um, that was caused by the lack of international students coming to the country and and so on. But of course, I mean that said, I mean a bit of a counterpoint. I mean most university managements didn't necessarily need to cut most of their staff because really. You know, the universities had massive kind of assets yeah. um, that they could have used um, in order to get through this pandemic while keeping their staff employed. And, of course, yeah. maybe the rice chancellor could have tried to um, volunteer to earn less than a million. <laughs> yeah, or maybe not get another pay raise while cutting staff. That happens so many universities. Hmm. So, yeah, anyway... Um, and I guess another kind of um, a kind of another sort of update I kind of want to give on terms of the uh, in terms of student politics is um, basically there is a bit of um, there is a bit of a push at University of Melbourne um, to open up the um, to open up a new kind of institute known as the Robert Menzies um, Institute. Um, so basically, there is um, there is a basically going to be a push um, to there's a, um, basically a push from the university. Uh, um, 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 from the University of Melbourne to essentially open, um, to essentially establish the Univer- uh, Robert Menzies Institute um, in September. And of course, this is under the kind of, um, uh, under the guise of um, commemorating Robert Menzies' legacies, which, you know, in a sense is actually a questionable legacy. Um, he was a very right wing um, prime minister. Um, but on the other hand, what this institute kind of attempts to represent is it is actually an attempt by the right in terms of this sort of whole culture war. Um, and in fact, there's this whole kind of myth kind of pushed by the right that, you know, universities are like the bastion of kind of left wing kind of ideas. And, you know, we need to kind of do everything, you know, to counter that. And I think this, the establishment of this Robert Menzies Institute is in a sense, um, about pushing right-wing conservatism on um, universities. And I think, you know, it's being directed by co- um, hard-right culture wars like Peter Crandon and Georgia Georgina Dawa and spearheaded by the liberal-aligned think tank, the Menzies um, um, Research in, um, Centre. So there has actually been, there is actually an ongoing kind of campaign um, to oppose um, this institute. And in fact, there is actually supposed to be a rally on Wednesday 
August the 18th at 1pm at the South Lawn, the University of Melbourne. Not sure whether that rally will go ahead, um, but I mean, the lockdown is actually scheduled to end by then. So hopefully the the rally will kind of um, go ahead in um, line with COVID kind of restrictions, because I think this will be a very kind of important kind of movement sport. And yeah, I'll be supporting it as a University of Melbourne um, student. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a very important thing to oppose, especially because I feel like I feel like the right wingers who are like, oh, universities churn out left wingers. I'm like, have you met anybody who studied university that wasn't in the humanities and even like half the humanities students? Like, talk to a university accounting <laughs> student. Like, incorrect. Well, I think one of the one, one of the kind of things as well is. Um, in the context of like the um, of what's kind of happening to universities now, is there has been a real kind of neoliberalisation of universities, mm. which has actually, in a sense, contributed to depoliticising universities. So, yeah, for sure, um, these days we actually have far less broad mass movements um, around and campus. In fact, mm. probably the last sort of big movement that really sort of came on campus that I could even think about, which wasn't even necessarily that big, was the whole movement against fee de- deregulation. Yeah. Um, because there has been activities in terms of client activism, but it hasn't necessarily translated into um, a mass sort of organised kind of movement. And in fact, we're sort of well beyond kind of the days where students at, like, say, Monash were o- occupying mm. um, <laughs> occupying the university, etc., starting fights yeah. with police. I mean, that's all kind of things that all ancient history that happened back in 1960s. So, yeah, my I mom think- likes to talk about uh, La Trobe Uni back when it was started, <laughs> the all the entire student body getting into a fight with the police to stop them trying to get a draft dodger out of the uni. And yeah, we're very, it feels very like we're past those sorts of days where we could get that many people together. Though on the other hand, the entire student body at the time was a thousand students. So like, bit of a difference there too. Mm. But I think, yeah, part of, um, part of like giving, um, talking about these sort of campaigns is really, you know, all these sort of campaigns that we sort of talk about from the campaign against the Robert Menzies Institute, um, from this counter summit, um, from this counter summit, they all will be, you know, part of hopefully contributing to rebuilding um, the student movement in some aspects. So I think, yeah, for any kind of students who are listening, I think you, you should definitely try and get behind some of those campaigns. Absolutely. Anyway, I might just go play, um, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we'll also then discuss another news story. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it's uh, around 8.21 a.m., and um, we're getting a bit um, close to the end of our program, but I thought I would start a bit of a discussion. <laughs> There's always a lot um, kind of happening in the world, and one of the kind of recent sort of significant developments that have kind of happened in the past week, um, just to give a bit of context, is right now the United States... Um, 
is actually suffering a bit of a surge in COVID cases, and this is despite the fact that their vaccination ride is so well above <laughs> what 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 um what Australia has done. In fact, they've almost um reached a sort of position where. Um, at least 70% of the population has been vaccinated, or of course that could be an exaggeration, but that is quite a significant kind of barometer. But one of the, one of the kind of big sort of challenges, and this is, has been an ongoing issue since the COVID pandemic, was with the millions of people who have lost work as a result of the pandemic, um, the people who have lost kind of jobs, um, income, there has been, basically there's been this looming kind of, um, you know, way potential wave of people being evicted from their homes for because of not being able to kind of pay rent. So, and there's also um, like a concentration of COVID cases um, with many people who are unvaccinated um, and being hospitalised or even suffering deaths. And I guess one of the kind of interesting kind of developments is that the United States has, um, in a sense, has announced a new moratorium a 60-day eviction ban that would essentially protect millions of people within the United States. And this moratorium will essentially last until October the 3rd. And this was really has been kind of the result of of the amount of the pressure from movements on Joe Biden to essentially take action to help keep Americans in their homes as COVID-19 continues to spread. This moratorium was um, signed, actually signed by the Centers for Disease Control and um, Prevention on Tuesday. Um, you know, comes as the Delta variant, you know, has been driving a surge in cases. And of course, states have been slow to release federal aid, um, federal rental aid. And of course, the new more order would temporarily halt evictions in country and counties with substantial and high levels of the virus transmission and would cover areas where 90% of the, of the U.S. population lives. And of course, the announcement, um, the announcement was actually, and this I think reflects the kind of impact of um, the movements has been was a bit of a reversal for the Biden administration because initially they were um, basically argued that a Supreme Court ruling prevented a fresh ban after a prior moratorium elapsed at the end of July. And interestingly enough, Biden faced intensifying kind of criticism from lawmakers within his own power um, party that he was failing to protect millions of Americans from losing their homes at a time when the pandemic is far from owner. From over, the president had stopped for, um, short of on Tuesday announcing, announcing a new moratorium during a press conference, ceding responsibility to the CDC. And I guess, yeah, this is really as as a, as um, this article I'm kind of reading for kind of reflects. This is a win, um, a win, and of course, this is um, for pe- and <clears throat> there were there were dozens of people protesting outside the Capitol, um, trying to pressure the administration to put the moratorium. Um, um, back in place. So, yeah, with as many mm. as 3.6 million Americans at risk of eviction, this um, this will be, I think, an important um, win. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things that's interesting that we see in Australia as well, of course, because it's a politician thing, is the kind of um, the the train of responsibility. You know, Biden says it's the CDC. Or Biden says it's the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says it's the Senate, the Senate says that it's the House, the House says that it's the CDC, the CDC says that it's someone else. Like, it goes round and round, always dodging responsibility, but also delaying actually getting anything done. Because the CDC would have loved to have the ability to extend the moratorium, and then everybody was like, no, you don't have that power. They're like, who does? Everybody's like, points it to the person next to them. That guy does. 
Like, it's very much one of those political maneuvers that I was about to say that the right loves, but everybody loves. It's to delay doing things, but also not take responsibility. You know, Skomo's basically whole deal. Hmm. Delay things, don't take responsibility. Yeah. And I think it's, um, <clears throat> it's sort of interesting. And um, I think we'll go, we're definitely going to go back and explore what's happening in the United States in terms of the left and, um, and political movements, because I guess there's sort of like, just some from reading kind of the mainstream media since the election of of Joe Biden, it's almost like there's almost like this pretense that America is sort of mm. going back to this sort of period of normalcy. <laughs> uh, now, obviously, that's not necessarily going to be the case because I think you know the Biden administration. There's nothing progressive about it. They're they're completely committed to maintaining um, Amer- American capitalism, but, that's but the worse than quote. that, they were um, they want to um, maintain the impu- um, U.S. imperialism. But I think one of the but I do think it's sort of interesting that um, with the election of Biden, that the establishment is not even necessarily trying to give the pretense that Biden represents anything transformative, um, which is very different from um, from how the capitalist class presented Obama. Obama yeah. was presented as someone transformative, whereas Biden is just presented as, you know, putting things back to a sort of period of normalcy especially because we're all living in the kind of pandemic. So that's a bit of a kind of interesting kind of dynamic. And I think it'll be interesting to see what, what is the meat, what, how, what, what is sort of the implications of that, especially in terms of building a genuine left within um, the United States. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's what Biden ran on. And I don't think most people are surprised by it, of course, is, you know, his, his whole thing is in comparison to Trump, I'm going to take us back to normal. And normal is what you were just saying. Normal is the rampant control of capital. It's, you know, U.S. imperialism, unprovoked, you know, wars for resources, all of that. The endless war thing that people criticize Trump over, that's America's normal, you know, putting kids in cages at the border. That's America's normal. I mean, they got it from us as well, but, you know, it's still America's normal. It's the whole idea of we're going to go back to normal being any kind of progress it's nonsense, as we've seen immediately with the Biden administration. All right. And, well, um, on that, we I think we'll – I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, this will be the end of our program. And, yeah, um, we'll ho- I'll hopefully see you next – or see you all next week, and you'll hear from us when we're out of lockdown because the lockdown is apparently supposed to end <laughs> next Thursday. So yeah. let's hope, um, hope for that. All right. I'll just play um, – yeah. This is, um, I'll just hope, give me the opportunity for the presenters oh, yeah. to say goodbye. Goodbye. Go to worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com. <laughs> Go. Do it. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.